welcome to the JMS Podcast. My name is Jorge M. Sanchez, and thank you for tuning in. And man, we are surviving this weather so far. It's been raining quite a bit here in San Jose, California, and I must say, uh, I dig it. I like the rain. It's a nice time to uh, reflect, to think back uh, about the year and what you expect from this year, and uh, I got a lot, a lot of things to work on. A lot. I'm sure we all do. But nonetheless, today's episode, today's guest is Felicia Aleman. She is a comedian from Modesto. And uh, I've met her through the Open Mic Network here in the South Bay area. She would occasionally come to my comedy room on Wednesday nights at Cafe Frascati. And I don't really mention that on this podcast. I don't think many of my listeners know that I run a comedy open mic on Wednesdays at Cafe Frascati in downtown San Jose. And I, actually, I'm going to have another room, which is going to be announced later. And this room will not be comedy-based, but it, it should be an interesting exper- uh, an experience and experiment. But uh, all in good time. I will announce it. But yeah, uh, Felicia, she would occasionally come on by the uh, to my open mic, Cafe Frascati. And uh, I've... Uh, from the beginning, I've always liked her. You know, she she has a good energy around her, and um, she's she's uh she's definitely fun to watch perform. So look forward for that interview. And before we go to that interview, we have a new segment here, the JMS podcast. That's right. I'm trying to create more content, and I'm bringing more people to the team to provide the best entertainment and interesting subjects uh, to you listeners. And uh, this particular segment is called Weird New World with Ryan Sudokran. Me and Ryan Sudokran, we go back to our college years, which was not too long ago. Uh, he is a uh, physics uh, student, and he's all about science and all that. And he was also he's also a comedian. So all around, very knowledgeable guy and very funny. And pretty much this segment is about technology and human progress and just the weird things that we are coming up to uh, make our our lives crazier in some way. So uh, we're touching a lot of different subjects. And uh, today's episode, which is the pilot episode, so you're going to help us uh, to really shape this segment. Uh, so stay tuned. Um, this first episode is the future of sex. And um, it was a very interesting discussion uh, a lot to take from it, a lot to digest. And uh, if you enjoyed it, uh, please send me an email. Or if you did not enjoy it, please send me an email as well to Jorge. Oh, shoot. I was about to give you guys my real email. Oh, my God. That would have been disastrous. God knows the kind of things people would have sent me to my real email. But you can send me information about at jmspodcast at gmail.com. There we go. Please follow the podcast if you haven't already on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And please check out the jmspodcast.com website. All content is right there at your fingertips. Go do it right now. The JMS Podcast, we are currently looking for sponsors. So if you have a local business, I would love to advertise it for you guys here on the JMS Podcast. Uh, ground rules, you must be a local business. Uh, I'm all about supporting local businesses and, and the community. And if you have any upcoming events, 
please send them my way. All right, let's move on to our first segment. And this is Weird New World, Episode 1, The Future of Sex. We are here with Ryan Sudakran in this brand new segment called Weird New World with Ryan Sudakran. Thanks for having me on, Jorge. Thank you for coming this on board. Cool. This is cool. You are the official in-house scientist, sociologist, archaeologist, and all what, whatever ologists are out there of the JMS podcast. As of two minutes ago. It's a lot of responsibility. I don't know how to <laughs> deal with that. I'm already stressing out. Because the listeners here, I mean, a part of le- learning and knowing this numerous guests that come on, we all are trying to be informative. So let's inform our listeners of something interesting that's happening in the world. All right. I'll right? Just... That's what the show's about. Yeah. Yeah. What's uh, what's today's episode about? So, Jorge, I, I have been interested uh, in a lot of, like, cyberpunk stuff. So uh, cyberpunk was this movement, I think, in the 1980s where they talked about uh, the future of tech and how tech became a very integral part of daily life. But uh, other, rather than like major big sci-fi things like uh, Star Trek or Isaac Asimov, cyberpunk dealt with the grittiness of humanity. And one major thing or major theme in a lot of these cyberpunk novels was uh, sex, right? So how, how does the future of technology change sex, sexuality and love? And, and how, what does that mean for us? As human beings, and and we're we're nearing that point with artificial intelligence, with like these interactive sex bots, uh, where where we can create machines that are so good at like making pleasure that you know you 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 beg the question: Will will anyone ever leave their house? Right. In the future. Right. And in some way, I knew that Blade Runner was about sex. Yeah, I mean everything. You boil it down inside of sex or violence. <laughs> it's fucking animals, anyways. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, no, it's it's sex is a major like motivation. It's a major. Um, it's I mean, finding a mate is is for the the history of humanity has been like the greatest prize, right? right. Like right. that's that's the thing, and a lot of people theorize uh, that that's the motivation for for why men build skyscrapers or societies progressed even is that even becoming a Nobel Prize winner is just an elaborate scheme to fucking get laid. Right. <laughs> right? So, it, so technology is a forefront of, of the evolution of sex. Is that what you're telling me here? Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying that um, the, the paradigm of how we view sexuality and how we view love may change in the future drastically due to these emerging technologies. Because the thing is, is when you have these uh, sexual uh, technology, it's made mostly for pleasure. Yeah. Of the individual yeah so do you feel like that's gonna affect the, how we view intimacy with another person right so that's that's the thing so there, there are two arguments here um i mean i'll go through a bunch of like stuff i researched but uh, the main two arguments were that okay argument number one is that all right if, if you can fully simulate if you can fully simulate a human-like experience right so you have maybe some sort of sufficiently intelligent artificial uh artificial uh intelligence uh that you're interacting with and you can have sex with by means of a toy or whatever and you can do that from the the safety of your home 
then there's no reason to go out and find a real human. And then that, that sort of artificial relationship is on equal footing. And the other argument is that there's some sort of factor inherent in interaction with a real human that is undeniable. You need to see a real human to do that, right? And, and you know, people say that, okay, uh, sex is not actually at that important because, you know, porn stars uh, have sex all the time. So I, I watched a couple of interviews with porn stars and they, they said that, yeah, you know, I'll let my partner... This one person uh, said she, she's fine with her partner sleeping around, but uh, he can't stay the night, mm. right? That's like the number one thing. So their intimacy is is kind of cornered down to, you know, sleeping, like just actually sleeping with your partner and having moments that don't involve sex. So they've been able to car- compartmentalize sex into just the physical act. Interesting. So that's an argument here that these, these you know, crazy emerging sex toys are only going to do that. That we're going to have sex just... Like, if you want to do sex, it's like gratifying a need, like going to your fridge and getting a cup of water. Just go to the back and fuck a, <laughs> a machine for, you know, half an hour and then come out and then you're having a nice date with your significant other. You know what? That might save a lot of relationships. Maybe. <laughs> See, I mean, this. I mean, that's a good way. Like, if you're in the middle yeah. of an argument, it's like, dude, just go fuck the, 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 the fucking the refrigerator and come back to me. Right? <laughs> but there's... Release there, some stress out there. <laughs> I mean, it, it, so it has, it like, people who are forward, I guess, like, sex positive is, is the term uh, they throw around on the internet. But people who are sex positive, they take that view. It's like, it's just going to allow this emergence in sexuality, this openness, because these sex toys are going to be so readily available, and they'll be cheaper, and then everyone will have them. And then we can just have, like, more meaningful human relationships. Because maybe when you're going on a date, you're not just solely thinking about sex, because you got the best fucking fuckbot 7,000 at home that you can, you know, crank on and it's better than any woman. Now, do you feel that this benefits or this um, actually does not benefit uh, when it comes to gender? Like, do you think females or males get the best out of this deal or, or do you feel like it could be like a mutual thing? Well, I mean, the, for, for all these new toys and technologies, there's both male and female toys right there's like dildos and whatever fake vaginas so i mean as far as the industry is concerned they make it for both um but there's a concern that men are more visual and they would get more out of the um like the sex toy because men are just like you know like snap sexual urge gratification machines right a bit more primitive that's the yeah so that's the argument and women women are more um emotional and they want a, a deeper connection and they're not just looking for um the sex, but but they have shown that women actually have. I mean, there's some studies that women actually have. Uh, I should actually bring these things to quote because I feel weird saying there's some studies, but the women actually have an equal amount of sexual urge, and it's and having these toys is more like a uh, stress removal um, device for both sexes. Okay. Right. Like so, if if you're able to uh, dehumanize it as much as possible, then it's just like a stress ball or something like that. So that, that's that argument that it's, it can be used as therapeutic help. Like, um, they were, there was this one, they had this, uh, on this vice documentary, they had this, uh, sexologist there. And he was talking about how during the internet age, as soon as the, the advent of internet pornography happened, so many of his like sexually dysfunctional patients dropped. Because now they had an outlet for all their weird fetishes, right? Like before you're, you're frustrated, there's nothing, but you know, now with the advent of internet porn, any weird fantasy you have is there at your fingertips, mm-hmm. right? Like there's a whole community for it, probably like foot fetish convention or whatever. That's there now. So 
it has some effect on people with like some you know uh, sexuality or sexual uh, urges that need to be gratified right so I think it has the utility personally I think it has the utility for help but other people are saying that eh, if you have over sexualization of uh, of like the opposite sex then you'll never be able to truly appreciate your human partner and it could be detrimental to relationships right so people have, there's also another group that's saying that pornography is ruining real relationships because people come up with these huge expectations from their their partner based on porn and you're not able to have a functioning healthy sexual relationship right so, uh, that's actually a, a real thing that that uh, it's a thing is like some people are saying that you should uh, view porn very carefully because uh, if you're too much into it when it comes to actually uh, having sex with a real person you you will not be able to perform because you're so used to of uh, doing it via internet yeah and that see I think that so the point that's the porn argument right and like that's just visual stimulus alone so now compounded upon that with these new like so for for instance I'll I guess I'll just go through like some of the weird shit that I saw that's becoming more and more prominent uh, there's this movement for uh, f- fuck dolls for lack of a better term uh, really there's a movement for that it's like it's a big thing it's it's grown since in the past couple of years they've become more and more popular there's multiple companies before I think it was just the real doll company and they, essentially what they do is they make like five to six thousand dollar customizable real life silicone or like life size silicone fuck dolls is, is that what they call it in the market fuck dolls well, yeah they're sex dolls fuck dolls yeah <laughs> I mean, it's what it is, and it's right. and it's weird, man. It's like a corpse that you lug out and fuck, and then you have to clean after. But it has like human feel, and they're all handmade. Each one is tailor made because if you're paying six grand for a for it, this thing, that's weird. Yeah, I don't know. That's weird. See that there's a thing, and uh, I was watching this documentary about them, and everyone who's everyone who they showed uh, who had you know had sex with them felt that it was weird so it's it they felt that it was more than masturbation but it was less than having sex with a real human it was like this weird limbo zone in between like you're simulating it as well as possible but it's just not there mm-hmm. and 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 it was unclear whether they i mean i'm sure people enjoy it right but it, it just has this quality like when you look at something that that is so similar but not it, it hits this thing uh what they call the uncanny valley where it's just this odd zone. Now, will this also change the way we see morals and the way we see, you know, yes, we have this uh, this technology. Yes, we have these capabilities for hedonistic uh, uh, activities. Yeah. But sh- should we? And that's a common question of science. We can do so much great stuff and some crazy stuff, but should we? So, well, here's the thing. So there, uh, this was coming up in the VR argument. The technology is going to progress regardless right so it's gonna allow for greater access to virtual reality porn um and it's unclear what that will do but uh there's always positives tied with the negatives right there's there's positives for positive uh or there's possibilities for positive sexual therapy right if you have a highly interactive sexual uh simulation you might be able to say cure someone's anxiety Right about a sexual situation, right? If, if like if you have full three D volumetric renderings of a woman, that is the closest you can get to like interacting. Maybe someone's afraid sexually, right? So, now, 
what does what does that say about us? Where we need this kind of help to get over a, something that we've been doing for thousands of years, right? So I, I mean that's that's the. I mean, I'm a pull yourself up by your bootstraps type of guy, right? Like I say, jump head first into any problem. But I mean, there are people who maybe without that technology would never have gotten to experience any sort of. Maybe that's th- part of part of Darwinism. Maybe, maybe because I mean, yes, well, yes, we're talking about sex, and yes, we're talking about this. But at the end of the day, why do we have sex? At the end of the day, why do is our, is our primitive thing to mate, whether with one person or with several people, and that is to carry on your genes. Right. That's true. But so actually, that's an interesting point because I, I I come from the school of thought, and I think I think it's valid. Is that we have gone to this point of intelligence where we have successfully separated sex from the act of reproduction in our head. So okay, hear me out. Nature gave us this incentive to procreate, right? It feels good. It feels great. Arguably, it feels the best thing ever, right? It feels like the best thing ever. But. We all have the, like, men, women have the state of mind to to use birth control, right? Sex and having a kid are totally different things. Sex is a totally different act. You don't think of babies when you have sex, right? Like, even nature even programmed that in. Like, you don't think of, oh, I'm having, I'm having, a, I'm going to have a child with you, right? No, that's not, that's never a thought. It never occurs, uh-huh. right? In fact, it's a fear, <laughs> So it, it's it's like we we have gotten past the hump where we needed that incentive directly for reproduction. Reproduction now is a social question, right? Having a child is this whole socioeconomic thing. It's not purely about we just need to spread the species because we now as a species have different roles. We have a society. And so everything we do is within that framework. So it's not just like fuck to have kids. Like no, I don't think many people think like that anymore except if you're even in the tribal society your children are like progenitors of your value so okay maybe in those tribal societies because of the the marriage the strictness of marriage marriage and sex and having children is like confined right they, they don't want people sleeping around you have to be a virgin when you get married yada yada but in, at least in modern urban society western western society uh, american can we go there i mean it's it's more than american or european european or has society? Yeah, yeah yeah european western right. uh, even i mean even parts of asia are changing um it's it's this totally different thing it's casual it's it's for pleasure uh, of course it's used for relationships but we have separated it it's a different area of life it's not it's not the same as like the home values that were traditional in in human history so i think that that we've already compartmentalized it to a certain point and this burgeoning sex toy industry is just a further compartmentalization but it's still unclear about the psychological effects now where does this fit in economically economically and socially and what i mean by that is like here in our uh, western society uh, we've moved on kind of from the uh what's the word I'm looking for uh, developing world mm. now h- how does this technology could affect a country or society that's still in the developing process or even on third world countries well I think right now at least in the stage that it's in uh, it's all very expensive it's all for the bourgeois or you know the western middle to upper class right it, I mean what so this is this is this is the current state the current state is you have these interactive toys uh-huh. um uh, and that so 
we were growing to somewhere. And and what I've been thinking about is this is maybe 10, 20, 100 years into the future when they've perfected VR, when VR is accessible to everyone, to even the lower class, right? Because now people, uh, like people in poverty can, a lot of people, more people can afford laptops, is what I'm trying to say, right? More people can afford laptops than you could 10 years ago, for sure. Sure. Yeah. Definitely. So as technology gets uh, more efficient and smaller and more compact and it gets cheaper, then more people get access to it. So at some point, feasibly, more people get access to VR. And that's all the benefits of VR, like virtual libraries, virtual games, completely immersive virtual worlds, and completely immersive uh, physical experiences maybe, right? And if you can generate a perfect rendering of a woman and, and, and a perfect- Or a man. Or a man. I'm thinking selfishly here, but uh, perfect rendering of, of a mate and and equipped with an artificial intelligence that to your knowledge interacts just like a person. And, and here's how, and we're already kind of getting there, right? Because machine learning's evolved to such a point where if you scan thousands, millions, and we have access to millions of like Facebook messages or uh, text messages and learn how human beings respond to certain queries, you can generate a system that when you ask it a question, it's already learned from say a million like, hey, what's up queries from people's texts say, it will respond like a person. And maybe it doesn't have consciousness, but it's just like a machine that throws out the right answer to your question. And if you encode that in this perfectly simulated human, I mean, what would the incentive for people, what would the incentive be for people to go out and have, you know, a real human mate? And this is actually a pertinent question because it's already happening in Japan. Not to the scale I'm saying, but the birth rate is down around 50% in Japan, right? Young men and young women are not going out and having relationships. Young women are very work-centric and work-focused, and young men are really into the digital culture, and a lot of a lot of the Japanese youth is um, taking on these virtual anime girlfriends. And it's, it feels weird to us, but it's huge there. It's a really big thing. And there's more, apparently there's more uh, senior citizen products out there than like uh, uh, young people. Uh, like there's, I heard on in the Vice documentary, it said cleverly, there, there are more uh, adult uh, I, like, I like how your number one source is Vice. I like Vice. <laughs> Vice is my shit. <laughs> I was honestly binging on Vice documentaries. They this, have a lot of the, good like the segments brought to you by Vice. <laughs> Maybe they'll sponsor you. Who knows? Well, I don't know if they sponsor other like journalists. Yeah. But you were saying, yeah. sorry to interrupt. Well, that's fine. Uh, yeah, there are more. They were saying there are more adult diapers than there are baby diapers in Japan now. There are more adult diapers sold. So people are growing old, but no one's getting born. Right. And and this is because of this sort of uh, compartmentalization of of sex and of relationships right they have in japan they have cuddle bars so people go to a bar or a cafe to just sit and cuddle with someone and it's like oh i need human intimacy there's a there's a place for that there's a service oh i need to be uh adored you can go to a bar and hire a what they call a host to just talk with you and have fun like it's a person to hang out you can hire friends you can hire so they've they've all these different you know, seemingly complex, dynamic human emotions or, 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 or needs, you can, they have it down to a science in that just go to this place and you get it. 
for some X amount of money. And and the Japanese people, Japanese youth find that that is way more efficient, a way more efficient use of their time than to actually spend time in having a real relationship. Interesting. So with that, now that's like a test case that that possibility exists. Like human beings can compartmentalize to that extent because the Japanese people are doing it. Now, it sounds like a good uh, example of how this technology is influencing society in Japan. Yeah, definitely. And and it seems like the people, for the most part, are good for it and how it is over there. Yeah, I mean, they're... Now, I, does that reflect on happiness? Because as far as I know, uh, Japan is still the number one when it comes to suicide. Yeah, rates. so I don't know. So I don't know about the psychological, the average mental health of a, a 20-something-year-old Japanese person. Maybe that's suffered. I mean, it's 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 a weird it's a weird time that we live in now because it's it's kind of it's changing how I don't know it's it's changing how like our own personal responsibilities are in a sense, right? Like if back in the time of Shakespeare, people would memorize huge passages, whole books, recall from memory, right? But we have this great tool. Uh, that that just allows us to uh, to just allocate things, right? We we don't need to do so much processing on our own in our own brain. We can just leave it to the phone. So we're just kind of like at the helm of the ship that has all these tools set for us. Uh, and it's weird. It's like where where is the last uh, vestige of humanity? Like what what'll be left? Right? What'll be left? Uh, uh, okay. On that note, we're ending the segment. Yeah. We, we start off talking about sex. Now we're talking about like, oh, where, where, where? Well, I mean, where I think it's related. But, uh, but anyway, uh, closing remarks on your part. Uh, what's the best that the uh, listeners can get out of this discussion? Um, I, I just think, uh, I, I don't know. Think, think about yourself. Think about what you would get out of uh, sex toys, and and think about how you feel about uh. About like fucking a sex doll. I don't know. I mean, there's there's just philosophical implications. Just uh, I don't be as a uh, crazy as me, but um, but it's it's a cool thing to think about. Like what 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 it does to sexuality, and what it means for for the future. All right, uh, Ryan. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. <laughs> And there you have it. What do you think? Do you agree or do you disagree? Or would you like to add on to the conversation? Please send me an email at jmspodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear back from you. And I'm looking forward for more episodes and more subjects to touch on that segment. All right, let's move on with our interview with uh, Felicia Aleman. Um, uh, she came on a... Saturday, and I we, someone gave me rhubarb pie. I believe it was Jake Wickman. That's right, because Jake Wickman he had a music show in Mountain View, and I was emceeing the show, and it was a great show, by the way. Oh my god, like it's always fun to watch uh, these musicians play live. Uh, so Cora, of course, uh, and Alex, um, uh, from the uh, well, his band that night was the Pinecone 
killers and uh, Marty Murillo and uh, it was all great seeing them and 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 emceeing the night and and uh, Jake Whitwin goes hey let me pay you in pie and he gave me a rhubarb pie and man that was shit was good oh I didn't think I was gonna like it but I really did so uh, I, I put it in the fridge and Felicia came by and I was like hey we like a slice and we were eating our pies before the, before starting the interview so let's start there let's go to our interview with Felicia Aleman Yeah, rhubarb pie. Yes. Amazing. Pretty yummy. Like, I, for some reason, I thought rhubarb w- w- was a kind of plant. Is it not? Well, it looks like a big piece of pink celery. So I've always been like, who wants celery pie? Cause so, so it's a vegetable. Yeah, I guess. I don't. Yeah, because it looks like a big piece of celery. Yeah, I was really surprised. I, I did not think I was going to like it. I, I was uh, on Mountain View last night. I was hosting. I wasn't hosting. I was emceeing a music show. And the guy's like, hey, you know. Did a good job today. Here's a, here's a whole pie for you, and I took it. Well, wow. you, you you ever gotten paid in some weird uh, way like that? Um. Uh. Perhaps some herbal payment has been received. Well, yeah. Well, some organic a, payments. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's still green. Yeah, it's green. Yeah. It works out. Uh, but Felicia Elman. Aleman, come on now. Aleman? Okay, because you've come by Friscotti, right? Mm-hmm. What? Ha- have I always introduced you as Elman? Mm. No, I think I usually tell you like right before I go on stage. Aleman, yeah. Mm-hmm. God, I'm so bad. I'm a bad Latino. I'm only gonna, yeah, and I'm only giving you shit because you're Latino, so. Yeah. Oh, yeah? You're, yeah? you're not giving me the pass? Yeah, you don't get the pass. You don't get get away with not calling me Aleman. <laughs> <laughs> but how you been? Good, good. What's new? I haven't seen you for Scotty for a while. Yeah, we have just been staying busy and um, just running around. And Wednesdays has, has ended up being an off day. Usually our big day, um, miking is Monday. We'll hit three or four. And then Tuesdays and Wednesdays are kind of up in the air, depending on what's going on. Because we spread our time being in the 209. We spread our time between the Bay and... Uh, uh, Sacramento. So also we we kind of stopped going out on Tuesday, on Wednesdays just because Tuesdays we can get three mics in in San Francisco. So we'll go Monday, Tuesday, and then Wednesday we're like, okay, yeah, we stayed out till four o'clock in the morning and had to work the next day <laughs> already. And, and you're driving from Fresno, right? No, Modesto. Modesto, which is further north than Fresno, but it's about an hour and a half drive to get us to the bay. Like it took me about an hour and a half to get here. Mm. And um, we can make it to San Francisco if we're lucky, because I have the fast track. We can make it to San Francisco in about an hour on a good day if we're super, super lucky. But it's about an hour and a half anywhere in the Bay, about an hour and a half anywhere in Sac. I feel like a lot of comedians from that area, from Modesto, the Central Valley, from Fresno, Mm -hmm. like you guys are like road warriors because you guys travel far and wide from mics. And it it seems you guys are more... um, you guys are more... What's the word I'm looking for? It's not a big deal. It's just you, something you have to do to get mics. As opposed to some like a comic from San Francisco, they usually make a big stink about coming down to San Jose just for a mic. Exactly. And, you know, 
and like people say oh you guys are savage you know you did four mics tonight and it's like we had to drive an hour and a half like we're not just gonna drive an hour and a half so we can wait two hours in a bar and do five minutes a piece like it has to be worth our time right right you know so like if we go if we do a one mic night it's usually like laughs unlimited in Zach or something like that but um yeah you know when when Bay Area comics are like you guys are savage like well you guys are just spoiled because you guys can just walk out on any night of the week and go hit a mic or two and it's no big deal you know for us it's like you know I go to work I work from eight to five I go home I get dressed I get right back in the car and hit the road and we're going somewhere so yeah now is it because there's a lack of mics in Modesto or or, or are there any mics in Modesto they there's one monthly open mic and there are two well there's one comedy show that's a showcase that goes on twice a month and then we have another showcase that's on a break for a while but they were only going once a month so we don't really have uh, the, just the audience for, for comedy in, in Modesto. It just isn't there enough to keep it up every single, Cause you it, know. Because it's, it's a small town or, or like everybody knows each other in some sense. Yeah, I mean, it's not that small. I think we have like almost 200,000 people, but it still feels like a small town. You know, um, all the all the comics know each other. My boyfriend is a musician, and so like all the musicians know each other. You know, it's just... It's a pretty tight-knit community. I mean, that's one thing I can really say about the 209 on music and comedy both is that everyone knows each other, and for the most part, everybody is pretty supportive of each other, mm. you know, and so it's pretty it's pretty cool that way, but it just sucks that we just don't have the venues. We don't have the means to, to keep our, you know, to have our own real strong scene. Well, in general, how is the comedy scene over there? Uh, how, how would you best describe it? It just... Um, we have good shows, you know, good showcases, but as far as for being a starting comedian, you have to go other places. Mm. You know, if you want a mic, you know, we can do, I can generally do a showcase a month, maybe every couple of months in Modesto. Um, but in order to get the practice in, we have to come out here or now, go to SAC. Now, uh, from the first day you walked into Frascati, I, I already knew that there was something interesting. Uh, you came to do stand up, and uh, and sure enough, you were great on stage, and and it's like, I want to know what happened. What happened? Yeah, what what happened? Because uh, like, it, 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 you 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 have this amazing uh, uh, look of, of a motherly thing, you know. You got a motherly thing going on, and you don't really attribute motherly people performing on stage. Of course, that's bullshit because you know, like yeah. like there's comedians like Roseanne Barr, and there's. There's a, even locally Tila Allen Gallo, but still it's it's like for me I, I was wondering like well, like did you start young did did you start much later in life um, what did it happen Felicia when did it happen and what happened I actually started in in March it'll be a year and um, before I did it I spent about a it's like some doing being a comic was something I've wanted to do since I was like a little kid like I you know when I was come when I was a little kid. Um, Saturday Night Live, the original Saturday Night Live, not ready for primetime players, had just gone into syndication. And so I was just mesmerized and amazed and just, I loved it. And so, you know, I grew up at a time where like Friday nights, you would stay up and watch Fridays, which was kind of like a Saturday Night ripoff. And then Saturday Night Live would come on on Saturdays and afterwards would be SCTV. Back when there was Rick Moranis, Dave Thomas, 
um, Eugene Levy, you know, all those people. And I just, I loved comedy. Um, but I became a teen mom and I had a kid and, you know, what just, age did, did you I, I was, I was, a, I was 18. I had just turned 18 when 18. I, and I, oh, so you were right in the fringe. Yeah. So actually like I got pregnant in September, like in, I found out I was pregnant like in November huh. of my senior year. I got married. I turned 18 in March. I got married in April, graduated high school in June and yeah. had my baby in July. And then, you know, life just kind of took over and it was like all about taking care of my kid and going to, you know, having a job and stuff. And, um, first of all, I'd like to know, how how did you, what goes through your mind when you're at that age, at that point of life and you realize that you, you, you got someone coming, you got to really got to take care of. When I was that young, it was, um, it was hard. I mean, it wasn't hard, like. I think when you're that young, you're kind of stupid. So you think like, oh, I can do, like, I can do this, you know, whatever. And my mom, my mom and had me three days before she turned 18. My mom was technically 17 when she had me. So, you know, it was like, well, my parents did it. Like, I can do this, you know, like, it's not a big deal. Was it a boyfriend at the time? Yeah, we ended up getting married. Okay. Like, right before the baby was born and stuff. But, um, yeah, when you're that young, I think you're just, you know, at least for me, it was like, oh, yeah, I can do this. Anybody can do this. But, you know, it quickly kind of all started crumbling. You know, my my husband was three, was like, I was like 18. My boyfriend was just, well, my husband was just turning 21. So, and neither one of us had ever lived away from home. Yeah. So it was really weird. Um, but you know, I just think, oh yeah, you can have a kid, and it was it was tough, and it was tough because neither of us had lived away from home, you know, we'd never had a kid, um, and then I had the uh, the added bonus of just having some mental issues that I was not dealing with because what kind of mental um, issues? Sorry, I have my pen. I've been I've been diagnosed with PTSD. I've been diagnosed with clinical depression. Um, but basically, I had a lot of really bad manic episodes. Um, you know, they so it was it was tough um, because I had so much other stuff going on in my head and still trying to maintain and make sure that I was working because my my husband ended up cheating on me like four months after my baby was born. Oh wow! And so I was like. And up until then, I was like, oh, my God, we're so in love. And, you know, we're going to live together, be happily ever after. And cheating me. I'm like, oh, hell no. I'm not going to let some stupid dude, you know, leave me and my kid out on the street. And so I immediately went to trade school and immediately found a decent job with benefits and, you know, immediately got my shit together. But that totally canceled out, you know, any, any like, even doing local theater or anything like that. You know, it was just not. So... Before the pregnancy, when you're in your teenage years, that, that's something you were looking forward to being as, as some sort of entertainment? I did. I was like the biggest in high school. I was in band and drama and choir. I loved, I was What instrument performed. did you play in band? Oh God, I played the clarinet. And hey, was, that's uh, a hard instrument. Oh, and, and you know, it's funny because I always, I always thought like I was never good at it. And then the other day I heard someone playing a uh, uh, clarinet solo and I was like, God, no wonder I was never good at it. I hate that fucking noise. <laughs> like, that's a terrible sound. Right. But um, but mostly my mom used to encourage us to be in all of those things because she knew that's where we got to take field trips because we couldn't afford to, you know, my parents couldn't afford to take us around and stuff. But, you know, band had a tour, had like a tour every year. 
so we'd get to go to you know uh, Great America or Disneyland or the board, you know, Santa Cruz Boardwalk or whatever. And choir had a tour, same thing, you know. And drama wasn't so much drama wasn't so much the field trip kind of thing. I just loved drama, but my so mom, you acted on stage. Mm-hmm. What, what productions did you act in? Uh, let's see. I was in Arsenic and Old Lace. I oh, was that's a the, classic. Yeah, I was in one of the grannies. Um, God, I had a lot of small parts. Um, yeah. I was one of the ghosts in uh, A Christmas Carol, which that actually, in my high school acting career, that was probably my most like honored role because uh, our drama drama teacher, uh, his wife, his, his late wife had been one of his students and um, he had been her teacher. And uh, then years later they got married, but that part that he gave me was the part that had been hers. And, you know, she passed away and it was a very traumatic thing for him. And he still was, you know, like that was still the love of his life. And so to me, when he gave me her part, I just felt like very honored. It's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, too, right? exactly. You got to have your A game for the sake of his, uh, his mental, yeah, you know, exactly. his, his emotions. Exactly. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it was fun. But um, yeah, I used to love drama in high school and just all of that. And um, now how many siblings did you have? Two. Two. Just I'm I'm the oldest. You're the oldest, so two younger. Yeah. Uh, what, what did your parents do? Like, what kind of li- what kind of life was it going on in Modesto? Well, I talk about this in my act, but it, I mean, and it's really true. People maybe don't believe me, but um, my dad, when I was about, I want to say eight to ten years old, my dad started selling crank, which was like meth, but. You know, it was meth when Mexicans used to have to bring it over the border before the hillbillies figured out they could cook it here. Mm-hmm. Um, so my mom was forever, you know, trying to keep the the house together. You know, like we were going to live a normal life. And my dad was just, just, you know, strung out, tweaking, um, you know, and all of the wonderful emotional mood things that go on with that so it was kind of a weird childhood but that's how you sought to pay the bills was selling crank well you know the it really wasn't I mean my dad had a good job it was just something he kind of fell into which um this is like oh god but basically there's a glass plant that is run by a uh, that that is run in Modesto and uh, the the glass plant run, runs twenty four hours a day, right? You can't shut down those furnaces really? in, at a glass plant. Well, I didn't you know, know they're making bottles. And uh, rather than say, okay, you know, this group of guys is all day shift, this group of guys is all swing shift, this group of guys is all night shift, and just let it go on, uh, they ro- worked rotating shifts. So you would work like five days. Uh, You'd work like five days swing and then you'd have a day off and then you'd work like six days grave and then you'd have like two days off and then you'd have like, you'd work like six days days and then four days off or something like that. That's tough for the body. But yeah, and basically the only thing you can do to keep that schedule up is crank. And I mean, I know a lot of people in Modesto who are like, yeah, don't over ever get involved with anybody who works there because they're going to be a tweaker because that's just how it it works. I mean, you can't rotate shifts and it just doesn't make any sense to me why they've never just said, okay, you know, this group of guys, you guys are now third shift, you guys are now whatever. 
I mean, so, so, so that these people are, are real victims when it, sorry, it's just my, yeah. it's just the headphones. Uh, but yeah, it seems like this industry really uh, fucked over some people. Well, and you know, I mean, I don't know how it is, but I know the dairy industry, my father, my ex-father-in-law's, one of my ex-father-in-laws used to work in the dairy industry and it was the same thing with rotating shifts. He never did anything like that, which I don't know how he did it. Right. But, um. Yeah, but most, a lot of people, you know, when you have that, it, it leads to it. And it was, you know, and then once you're in there, you know, once that addiction kind of gets in there, then it's all over. I, I mean, eventually my father ended up losing his job because he got arrested and, and everything else. But he kind of fell into it because he's working these crazy shifts and, you know, he knew a guy who knew a guy, whatever, and he was getting it. And people were like, oh, hey, dude, like, can you hook it up? And then, you know. Yeah. It was kind of like all of a sudden he had all these people, you know, constantly like, hey, can we get some? Hey, can we get some? And then he became a drug dealer. and He became the go-to guy. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so it was uh, – my, my joke is that I was raised by Betty Crocker and Tony Montana because, you know, yeah. mom was still, like, making tortillas every night, you know, and dad was coming home randomly and whatever. And Is, is that where the PTSD came from? Uh, probably, Yeah. I mean, it's funny because, like, uh, comedy, I think, has kind of made me look deeper into myself because, you know, I joke about some of this, these things, but I, I, like, when I think about them, it brings back all these memories and I'm, like, having to process them. And, you know, for a lot of years, therapists have, have said, you have PTSD. And it's like, how could I have PTSD? That's what, you know, there were no bombs in my house. There were no this is and that's, and, you know. Yeah. There was nobody shooting at us. But the fact that my, you know that my dad could be so volatile. You were constantly on eggshells because, you know, my dad sometimes would literally sleep on the couch for three days. Yeah. You know, and we didn't know if nice dad was going to wake up or, you know, terrible dad was going to wake up. So it was always, you know, it was always uh, just a lot of stress. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. PTSD, I think often yeah. when you think of PTSD, you think of... of um, uh, war, mm -hmm. you know, people who were in battle, but it, it, it works differently. Like I know I have a form of PTSD myself, yeah, I, and it's it's not so much of of being startled all the time. It's more about just being stressed. That and, that tension, yeah, and, and the tension of so, something is is happening, something bad's gonna happen without even knowing why, but you just feel like something bad's gonna happen, and it, it really. What's the word? Because when it happens to me, I do have anxiety attacks. Yeah, and I have panic attacks even to this day. Yeah. And and, and for me, you know, over some therapy, I, I got to you know control it a bit more. But but it took it took me a while to really accept it because I was always in denial about PTSD. Well, and we're we're Mex. I mean, I'm Mexican. I don't. Know. Are you Mexican too? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we're Mexican. So like you know, the cure for that if for for Mexican like mental health is like. You know, stop being escandaloso, you yeah, know, like, <laughs> it's like, shut up, you're being stupid, you're being dramatic, you know, whatever. And so I never really dealt with a lot of that stuff. And it's, I mean, it's funny that it's come, it's taken me this long and it's taken comedy to have me really look at this stuff and, and find out why it's, why it bothered me. Because it's funny. I mean, I can laugh about it now, but at the time it was terrible. Yeah. But now that I'm like kind of taking it apart to find the funny, I'm I'm also finding like, oh, this is what it was. You know, this is what the problem was. I mean, having uh, your dad selling drugs is kind of stressful just because too. Like, 
I remember just always being afraid my dad was going to be arrested, like always. And like if we, I was always afraid like I would say the wrong thing and, you know, the teachers would find out and you know what I mean? It was like... Were you at the time angry at him for putting you in that position? Um, It took a long time. I mean, it was still, uh, it wasn't until I was like an older teenager that I really got the anger going, hmm. Um, you know, because it's just like, okay, dude, like this has gone on too long, you know, like I get it you know, you went through this little phase or whatever, but come on now, you've been to jail twice. Like, you know, what's what's going to change this? So, Is he still in the picture now? No, my father passed away about a, about two years ago. Hmm. So, and, and actually, it's so funny. It's kind of funny, but one of the things that kind of really started hitting me about doing comedy was that I was the one who gave the eulogy at um, my father's funeral, and I made a joke and people laughed and I was like oh, that's where you got the bug yeah and I was kind of like <laughs> I kind of like this and it's like oh my god you're getting and then I was like I'll ask him hey did that other one hit that other joke did I get I kind of got and I was like oh my god like this is not normal right 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 telling jokes at a funeral telling jokes at a funeral but it was like I mean you know it was just it was just one of those things you know because my family always everyone in my family above everything else always had a sense of humor Mm -hmm. you know and even with all the weirdness our family even the extended family is still pretty close and stuff like that and everybody has a good sense of humor and you know like everyone's always talking crap about each other the joke in our family is always like don't leave the room because if the second you do you know they're gonna talk about you that's definitely for me growing up that's definitely a latino thing going yeah like the the shit talking kind of yeah like humor a bit roasting, you know. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Everybody was roasting each other. It was like, you know, somebody was like, you know, we'd be sitting around the living room, and everybody's like, "Oh, I've had a pee for half an hour, but I'm not leaving because I don't know what you guys are gonna say about me." And, and <laughs> like, I, and I was always bad at it. Like to this day, my family's surprised I'm the one doing comedy. Uh, <laughs> but in your part, was uh, so okay. So you, let's go back. You, you you were you had a child, mm-hmm. a girl, boy, daughter, a daughter. You had a daughter. Uh, you were married. But then, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, there's some things that went bad. Uh, did you divorce them? Yeah, eventually, yeah. Uh, and then what do you do from there? Like, what um, was the next step for you? And by this time, you've already uh, put put aside all the creative stuff, right? Yeah. It, it's more, you, were, you were in survival mode pretty much with yeah, the daughter. It was, yeah, exactly. That what, was, what, like, the only important thing to me. What line of work did you get into? Um, I went to, uh, like, a secretarial school. Um they were a lot better back then. It was one of those, like, you know, um, trying to think of what those colleges, you know, like the TV colleges, you know. Um, but it was a small local one in Modesto. So I took... It was a class. trade school, right? Yeah, it was a trade school. So I just learned strictly typing and word perfect, you know, Word and Word Perfect and Excel and, you know, how to use a 10 key and how to, you know... I mean, back then we still used typewriters, so you had to learn how to you know, set a typewriter and all of that stuff. And then I just like hustled until I got a a job, a good job with benefits. What job was it? I was working at a winery as a receptionist. Hey, far out. Yeah. So yeah, I did that. And Are there a lot of wineries over there in Modesto? Well, yeah, kind of. We have Gallo and then we have Bronco and then uh, Franzia, the wine group is is in, um, I think it's Ripon, which is not too far from us. So those are like the three major ones. But yeah, Gallo has been there since the beginning of time. How long were you there? 
Um, I jumped jobs a lot when I was younger because it was the way I could get raises. And at that time, it was easy to find a job. You know, there were so many jobs. And so I would stay at a job for like a year-ish and I'd be like, yeah, I'm kind of bored. And um, I can work over here and make, you know, an extra buck an hour. So I would just go. I mean, I've had like a zillion jobs, office jobs and things, but it's always pretty much been office jobs. Which one has been your favorite? Which one? Yeah. Oh, God. I've hated them all. You hated them all. <laughs> it's always, you know, it's, I, I mean, I hate this. It's just, it's uh Hey, work's work. I get it. it it's work. And that's yeah. why they pay me to be there. I. It's not, yeah. you know, when you're, a, when you're doing like secretarial type work, support staff work, there's really no thought involved, no creativity involved. You know, there's really, you know, you're just kind of an extension of a machine. To, that's what I feel like. Yeah. You know, it's like I have to put these numbers in the, the in the computer, but if the computer could magically get these numbers somewhere else, I'd be, you know, at the park across the street with my shopping cart. You know. Yeah. W- were you doing any creative writing on the side or anything like that? I would from time to time. Um, but I never really stuck to it, and also I would have manic episodes. So, like, usually I would write when I was, like, really manic, and then once I came out of the manic, I couldn't find that thought anymore, that, Mm. you know what I mean? So it was really hard. I mean, I did try, but um, it wasn't until, you know, a few years ago when I started writing, um, and I decided, you know what, I'm I'm gonna try this comedy thing, you know, let's see what I can come up with, and I started, uh, I started writing on three by five cards. I always had three by five cards in my purse and I would just sit there and just write. That's smart. Cause, yeah. Because you learn how to write short bursts of comedy. Yeah. And that's exactly what I wanted to do because, yeah. you know, I had been listening because I've always loved comedy. So I've always listened to interviews and, and whatever. And, you know, one of the, the, the prevailing things that we've heard is like, you know, you need to have a laugh every 30 seconds. If you go more than 30 seconds without a laugh, you're, you're failing. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to lose the audience. And so I thought, well, these three by five cards are perfect because it's not a whole lot of room. So I have to write, you know, this is gonna be my 30 seconds to get a laugh. And um, what's funny though, is when I actually went to do my first open mic, I did not use anything, any of the material that I had gotten, that I had written before. Um, well, uh, by then it's like, I'm pretty sure you, you were well rehearsed with your voice. Uh, and, and that's something that comes with later in age yeah. in life experience is de- developing your and this is not just comedy this is in film this is in music right. is developing your own style which is your voice and I, and I figure you know uh, already writing on the side already mm-hmm. developing already having a, a blueprint of the type of comedy by the time you reach a stage you're a lot more prepared yeah I think so I think that that did help me in, in you know going up there and like I called like in the oh, it's so weird because in the back of my mind I was like oh there's an open mic on March 29th I'm gonna go to that open mic and because um, Jimmy who was running it he had posted about it and I'm like yeah I'm going to that open mic and as it got closer and closer I'm like oh, oh hell no I'm not going to that open mic what the hell was I thinking and then like a like Wednesday before I message him like oh, well how much time you know how does an open mic run uh, you know how much time do you have to have and so he's answering all these questions for me we're you know messaging back and forth for a while and then he says well do you want me to save you a spot on Friday 
And then I felt kind of like, oh man, I just asked him like a shit ton of questions. And if, you know, if I don't go, I'm just wasting his time. I don't want to be that jerk, you know? And so I'm like, oh yeah, sure. I'll go. Yeah, no problem. And, um, I went and it sounded like I was going to cry the whole time because my voice was just cracking. Right. Um, but I did get like a couple of little laughs that were beyond not just the little sympathy giggles. And a couple of the other comics that were up there came up to me afterwards and like said, you know, you have some good material. And I was like, if I have good material, I can fix the whole talking part. Bah. But if I have some good jokes. And so then I was like, oh, OK, I'm going to do this again because I can do it better. Mm-hmm. And at first it was just like a challenge to myself. Like, I'm just going to keep doing open mics until I get to that set that I wanted. And um, yeah, I'm still going to open mics. I'm still looking for my set. Hey, calm down. You're, yeah. You've been at this for a year. Yeah, I know. Like, like, trust me, just take it easy on yourself. Because so far, I think you're doing a, a lot of great stuff. And the fact that you're traveling, you're getting your, your name yeah. out there, it'll come. Don't worry. Oh, yeah. But but when you started out, when was the moment when you're like, all right, I think I want to keep doing this? Oh, after the first mic. Yeah. After the, I mean, I came off the stage. I was like, I almost started crying. I was shaking. It crying was for like, exci- like excitement? Just, just, you know, just that whole, like, relief of, like, Oh my God, I can't, you know, like, I don't know. I felt like those people that you see at the end of the Boston Marathon that are just like barely coming through and they're crying and, you know, they've pooped themselves and everything else. Like, that's what I felt like, even though it was only five minutes, just like, oh my God, this is the worst thing. And then like, once I kind of let that shock wear off, I was like, oh, I can do it better next time. (laughs) And it was, it was over. I I totally understand. Like for me, the first time I did it, it felt like the first time I had sex where it's like, uh, I'm glad I I got it over with. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I I got, you know, um, some points, you know, (laughs) and on top of that, I can't wait to do it again. (laughs) Oh, that's right. I know I could do better next time. And then, uh, I can't wait to do it again. Um, that's great and from there uh, has your family been supportive oh yeah well yeah and it's funny because I did not I started you know when I started it was my dad had died in November and I started in March and um, a few months after I'd started my mom came out to see me and I go so mom what do you think and she's like it's good she goes but I thought you were going to talk about us more and I said, really? I go, you know, I didn't want to talk about my dad and my family out of respect for you because I didn't, you know, because my parents have been divorced for forever. I mean, they'd been divorced probably as long as they'd been married. But, um, you know, my mother still had that thing like, you know, respect your father and, you know, whatever. And so I didn't want to bring it up. And uh, when my mom said, like, talk about us, I was like, oh, Oh my, it was like just this huge weight lifted off of me. Like, that's what I wanted to talk about, but I've been holding back. And so even though it's not like a huge, a huge uh, part of my set or anything, uh, just the freedom knowing that I can talk about these things. Um, I still talk to my family though. Like if I'm going to tell a joke about someone in my family, um, like my rules are, I don't try, I try to make sure that they're not the, the, the butt of the joke like it's bad on me mm-hmm. and also I tell them first and I just say like this is the joke I'm telling it's not really about you it's more yeah but like are you okay with this and um I think that's probably why my daughter has not gone out to see me yet oh your daughter has not oh no. how, how does your how, how does your daughter feel about you doing comedy um is there she, a bit of a like oh my god mom's doing comedy oh no uh, you know it's she's 
nothing shocks her about me. I mean, we're both kind of the same way where it's like, you know, we'll just decide we're going to do something and we do it. And so it's like, oh, you're going to go skydiving? Okay. You know, because I'm kind of like, oddly enough, I'm the adventurous one in the family, you know, like, um, I didn't really have my 20s because I was having a kid and having a job and everything. So like once I turned 40 and my daughter had gotten married and, you know, moved out and everything, I was like, oh my God, I can have my 20s now. And so like, I go kayaking and we're always going to, con you know, my boyfriend and I are always going to concerts and, you know, um, this you is know. like later in your 30s, I'm assuming. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. We... Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So, it's, you know. Um, so, yeah. I'm just the one who always goes out. Like, you know, I go kay I went kayaking. And my family was just like, oh, my God. I can't believe you did that. Huh. And it's like, yeah. You know, I went kayaking at the slough in Santa Cruz. It was amazing. But I just, you know, like, I'm going to do this weird thing. And do you feel like... Uh, since you had that time to yourself and to redevelop, uh, a, you know, a bit of, um, you know, fun in your life. I mean, not to say you didn't have fun, but what's what I'm looking for? Uh, freedom. Freedom. Yeah. <laughs> freedom. Sure, we can go that route. Do, do you feel like your your manic episodes lessened? Yes. Yeah. And also, honestly, doing comedy, you know, sometimes it's really hard for me to like drag myself out of the house because I'm like straight on in the middle of a panic attack and I'm just like, I don't even know I'm going out there. Everybody hates me and you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm terrible. But then, you know, somebody will call and be like, Hey, you want to, you know, you want to go out and do this mic? And I'll be like, okay. And I mean, literally you, you I'll get be... some sort of validation that yeah. somebody appreciates your, your existence in comedy. Well, yeah. Well, not just that, but I kind of feel like, okay, well, if this person wants to go, you know, it's like, well, if he goes by himself, then he has to pay all the gas, and that sucks. And you know, we always go together. And so I will, I will make it out that I'm doing it for the other person. But really, it's like it's just making excuses that I'll haul my ass off the couch because yeah. otherwise, I will just hide and never come out of my, you know, never come off my cocoon. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I totally feel I'm the same way. Yeah, like I, even in the most mundane things, I'm in comedy. Like yeah. if if I go to a restaurant, they get my order wrong. I'm like, I I don't I don't tell them that the order's wrong because I feel bad it's like no then it's they're gonna be a, it's gonna be a shitty day for them and that's you know the last thing they want is probably to deal with another customer like me so I just eat the food that I did not order <laughs> I do that too I it like <laughs> takes a whole lot to make me angry or get me fired up it's like yeah, that's not worth getting fired up about I mean unless yeah. it's you know, unless there's like a fingernail in the mashed potatoes. Yeah, whatever. Just give me that. I'll take that food. Whatever. Extra protein. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's great. It seems like a great support system for the most part from your family. Because I, yeah. I my family, I mean, they're like, oh, he's just doing his thing. But they get a little annoyed that sometimes they become the subject, subjects of my of some of my material. Uh, so that's great that you have that. Yeah. But, but you're very courteous. You actually go to them and you, and you make sure you get permission. Yeah. That's something I didn't do. I should probably do that. I do. I mean, I just... Because I don't want anyone to feel bad for what I'm doing. Because it's like, yeah, I'm kind of putting myself out there. And I talk a lot about weird shit. I mean, you know, obviously my set, you know, the things that I talk about are exaggerated. But pretty much everything that I talk about has really happened to me or is really true or, you right. know, is really going on right. in my life. But at the same time, I'm not sure if you experience this, but at a certain point... Uh, because you're always trying to make people laugh and, and, mm -hmm. and entertain. 
and there's always the subject of uh, material that that could be perceived as offensive, and like you always try to be careful of that because you do not want to irk the audience or anything like that. But you know, over time, like I, I developed this 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 fuck you attitude when I perform because before I used to be you know safe. Have you do you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Have you reached that point yet? Yeah, because I mean I talk like one of my bits is kind of gross and sometimes I'll lose the audience. Like like it's a it'll it's a groaner and it's kind of gross. It's about talking about girls without a thigh gap. Mm-hmm. How the wind blows through their legs, you know, like I, you know, it's a whole part of a bit, but basically I say, you know, girls with thigh gaps, their cooch probably looks like a, a piece of bologna that you got left out on the counter overnight. Right. And it gets all weird on the edges and stuff. And that's a good one to lose a crowd on. And so sometimes I still kind of like, okay, I'll do the bit up to that point and then I'll stop. And sometimes I'm like, oh, forget it. You guys are listening to this, all of it. And they'll be like, oh, you know, and yeah. I just... I do that one for me sometimes. Mm. It makes me laugh. Everyone else is disgusted, and that's okay. I can deal with that. <laughs> uh, do you notice a difference between the uh, the crowds that are in the Central Valley and the crowds that you see up here? Oh, my God, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's, that's probably one of the things that I've noticed the most going around is that, you know, like, Sacramento crowds are different than, like, South Bay, different than San Francisco. You know, I mean, there's obviously always the difference between, like, when you go to a coffee shop as opposed to a bar. But um, even so, there's just always a different kind of culture. Vibe. Yeah. 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 And the different, you know, we're always kind of coming in on everybody else's group, you know. How so? So, you know, because we're from the 209, we're always outsiders. So I always kind of feel like I'm just looking in and going, oh, okay, this is how you guys operate. You know, so this is. Did, have you caught comedians trying to be territorial or something like that? No, not really. But I mean, you know, like if you go into a bar, you know, everybody's going to be talking because, you know, all the comics there already know each other. And we'll just kind of come in as outsiders. And they're friendly. Everybody's friendly and nice and stuff. But, you know, it's kind of not the same as like if I were someplace in Stockton with all the 209 comics, you know. Right, right. It's not really territorial. It's just you're more a part of the group as opposed to, you know, kind of standing outside. But I... I like to watch people and just kind of check out the dynamics between people. It's very it's interesting to me. Have you have you decided the, that there's a particular group of people that's your favorite as an audience? Oh my god. Um, I do better with older people closer to my age. I don't do better as well with the younger crowd. Um, really? Yeah. Yeah, I do because I do jokes I about... I enjoyed your material so much. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, but yeah, doing uh, for like a, a strictly older crowd, um, like I do okay with the younger crowds, but the older crowds, like, I feel like I'm just queen of the world when I'm there, you know, when I'm doing that. I did a, a thing on, on last Saturday in Stockton, and um, I was the only woman and there was there was a, it was a contest and then a showcase and I was the only woman period performing, and um, I told jokes about being a mom and how I'm a terrible mother, and you know and um, it absolutely killed. <laughs> it was awesome. That was like my favorite. But I've just noticed that like sometimes you know like going to brainwash where it's all, you know a lot of times it's the younger kids because that's where they can go, you know they're not even twenty one yet. It doesn't go over as well mm. a lot of times as it does when there's an older crowd. 
right right well it's just I think you have an amazing edge and that's yeah. definitely your, your life experience I mean because you can talk about things that a lot of us young people have no idea about yeah. but it's definitely things that people can find relevant yeah you know like how many comedians right now are, are mothers and can can make jokes out? not that many yeah and that, and that's not just you know the Bay Area. That's probably in you know, general statewide. Yeah, in general, actually. I well, think I mean, in, for women comics, I mean, it's so funny. Sometimes I just, you know, if I don't have a show or any place to go, I'll just go somewhere and I'll be like, oh my god, there's girls here I can talk to, like real girls that can talk to me, and you know, like it, it just it feels funny because I'm just always around men because that's who's out doing comedy, and there's very few women. Hmm. Uh, have have you ever um, experienced any hardship because of that? Like in a sense of comedy, like do do you feel like you you were in positions where like all right, like this is. You know, I I was kind of, I I had that was one of the thoughts that crossed my mind when I first started, but I honestly have never had that experience at all. Like, um, really funny matters and I was really scared when I was going to start comedy because it's like I'm an old fat lady like who you know who the hell you know how do I stand out when you know I know what the other comics look like they're young they're they're cute whatever you know and I'm like how the hell am I going to stand out in all of this and I was really scared about that but it has never been a problem it's like if I'm funny you know I get my kudos just like everybody else does and if I eat shit then you know I take it just like everybody else does again you have a great age it's refreshing your jokes are refreshing again <laughs> oh, you, you, your jokes are, are, are their own to you because you're you you know like uh, so many there's only so, so many jokes that us younger guys could really talk about a lot of it has to do with dicks uh, so uh, yeah I think it's a uh, it's good I mean you you won a, a competition recently right I won the 209 Not Many com- competition, and that was, uh, in in the 209, there's a, an award show called The Mamas, and um, basically it's kind of like our answer to the Grammys or whatever, and they give awards for comedy and different musical genres and so on. And so what the comics in the 209 did was uh, the Deaf Puppies, which I'm sure you've heard of, they're kind of a, they're, the Deaf Puppies are a comedy group from the 209. Uh, they put on a show and they called it the Notmany Show, and basically they invited comics who were not nominated for the Mama Award, and put us in a contest, and I won that, and that was pretty exciting. And then on um, Saturday I won a, the contest that I was in in Stockton as well, so and that was pretty awesome too. Walk me through your creative process. Uh, how do you go from the concept in your head to writing it on paper to performing it on stage? Um, either at, well, it's hard to explain. I, I kind of have to be in like this half asleep trance thing. So like a lot of times when we're driving, you know, I'll just kind of close my eyes and I'll just let these ideas kick around. And even while you're driving, you're closing your eyes. Well, no, I don't drive all the time. Oh, when you're a passenger. Yeah. When I'm a passenger, when I'm in the car. Sorry. Sorry. I just want to be. No, I just want to make sure we're on the same page here. No, but like if if Jimmy is driving or whatever, you know, if yeah. I'm in the just dry, riding in the car, I'll kind of close my eyes and go into that state. And even sometimes when I'm driving, I'll just kind of run this stuff in my head, and then I'll try it out. That's one of the advantages actually to doing more than one open mic is I'll try it out at a couple of open mics, 
and just kind of see how my wording works and so on. Then I'll write it down and I'll look at it and I'll be like, oh, well, you know, these words don't need to be here and oh, I can add this tag over here. So it, it a lot goes in my head. You know, I, I run them over in my head for a long time and I do it at work sometimes even just because sometimes my work can be so monotonous that my brain has time to wander away while I'm, you know, doing whatever else it is I'm doing. Uh, and I'm, I'm assuming that the 209 comics, it's, it's a very small group? Mm, yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly how many there are of us. I mean, I would say maybe if you count, if you start going up into Stockton, it gets to be more. But I mean... Because I, I figure it's great to have a small group of yeah. uh, people who are comics and to feed off from. Yeah. Feed off ideas. Uh, did you find that to be a case? Actually, I just recently started um, like having writing workshops with another comic, and it's been awesome. I never thought that I would, I would be into that. Why? Because um, it just seems so, um, you know, like taking a creative writing course or whatever. It just seems so like forced to me that I never really thought that I could get into that. And then now that I've started writing with him, it's really fun. In fact, like. I have a couple of new bits that have come from those where we just sit around and talk crap to each other and, you know, give each other stupid topics. You know, we'll like, we'll sit there and we'll just say, okay, you know, I give you the topic of this and then he'll give me the topic. Then we'll just sit there for five minutes and write. And then when the buzzer goes off, you know, we have to tell each other what we wrote. And, um, it really does help kind of just open up your brain and get other things in there. So it's, it's like free writing for comedy. Yeah. That's interesting. And so, yeah, we do that. I, I've been doing that with him, and it's pretty awesome. And sometimes in the car in the car rides, we'll do some stuff, too, where we'll just talk. You know, like, you know, go around the circle. and like, okay, passenger side has to tell the person behind him. Give him a topic. Okay, you know, fish. And you got to do like You guys are training or something. You know, it, it, sometimes it is. It just depends on which comics I'm with or whatever. But it's, it's awesome, and it, it just... Every, you know, I love talking to other comics just because I love hearing their processes too. Like, you know, where are you coming from? Where, where are your ideas coming from? And just kind of bringing them all together and, and doing that. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk about some stupid con, you know, we'll give each other some stupid topic, but then we'll be like, okay, that one line, that was the line, like write that one down. You, you, there's a bit there, you, you know, so it's, it's pretty awesome. How often do you guys do this? Um, I've only, I've been doing it maybe, I've done it maybe three or four times with this other comic um, but it's just a matter of timing you know he has stuff that he's doing I have stuff that I'm doing and whatever so but um, yeah I'm trying to do it more and more and I'm trying to do it even just for myself like you know I'll get one of my old bits and I've just been like I'll just sit there and kind of start writing new tags to it just like okay is this you know anything in here were any good but even if there isn't it's just that keeping the mind moving around have you found a, a theme that you go back to occasionally um usually it comes back to I, I try to bring it back to that I am a selfish bad person why what is that what is that, okay, what is oh, that? It's, it's it's my it's I feel like it's my uh my uh, payment for talking crap about everyone else like my boyfriend gets a lot of crap you know, in my in my set, I talk a lot of you know just crap about him. Well, and none to, of it to is be, true. To be fair, he's a musician. Yeah, I, exactly. Thank you. 
Yes. <laughs> but you know, you know what I mean? So it's like, and so I kind of feel like, okay, I'm, I'm putting all of my family in this situation or, you know, my friends, like, but I don't want, you know, I feel like my penance is, okay, I'm going to talk crap about all you people, but I'm going to talk the worst, I'm going to try to talk the worst crap about myself. Because I think it, I mean, now is my, I feel like my, I'm finding my voice more. And I am talking more about like, you know, my mental health and just, but also just weird things. I, I get a very skewed view of things. I mean, <clears throat> for example, uh, one time we were doing like a writing exercise and he gave me the topic of robbing a bakery and, or he said, uh, bun stealing is what he, what he said it. And I go, bun stealing. He goes, you know, like robbing a bakery. And I turned that into a uh, guy staring at my boobs, <clears throat> so, which is a, like a bit that I'm working on. But I mean, it's just like I just twist everything up in my head. That's interesting. It's interesting. how. You, so do you feel like you're doing something bad while you're doing comedy? Do you have like a bit of guilt? Not. I, I have a little bit of guilt because I have to talk about other people. If that makes you, any sense. Why do you feel that that's a guilty thing to do? Oh, because I just, I just feel bad. Like, I don't, you know, I don't know. I chose to go up on stage. Mm -hmm. You know, my daughter does not want to be up on stage, but I talk about her. You know, my mom doesn't want to be up on stage, but I'm talking about her. So they're kind of, I'm dragging them along whether they like it or not, you know, because a lot of my stuff is about family and, and growing up and, now, and things like that. Do you feel that's somehow related going back where when you were younger, you were very nervous to talk about your father and what he did. And you said you had to be careful what you said. Yeah. Do you feel like there's a connection there? I'd never thought of it, but maybe. <laughs> I mean, it's just, um, it's just my weird thing. And also, I, I think what I try to do too is, um, because my boyfriend always gives me a, a hard time about this stuff, was, is that I, I like to try to turn a situation where like, uh, you know, I'm, I want to I wanna turn it so that it's like, oh, I'm talking about this, but ultimately it's really about me. Like, oh, this terrible thing happened to you. Like, I, I, I'm going to make this about me now. So you know? a, a bit of narcissism. Yeah. Is that what you're accusing I, I kind you of? of? I, yeah. I, I, and I, I do I, that all the time. I, I get that sometimes. Oh, I do, but I do that all the time, you know, and I'll do that too. It's like, oh, well, I'm glad, you know, I'm glad you made that about you. Okay. Well, you need a bit of narcissism to, to really do comedy you, as a sense of, of motivation to even perform. Uh, yeah. It's like, hey, yes, watch me do comedy. Watch me make you laugh. You know, it, I mean, at first I used to shy away from it. It's like, because again, like I'm, I could really relate to you. I was like, yeah. yeah. I was like, no. What, what am I doing? Was, what does it really mean? Like, wh like who, who am I really? Like, am I really like this? But it's like, you know what? It, it's all because people always say it's like, be careful with your emotions. But I say, you know what? Just use your emotions and even your bad attributes and your personality to something productive. So I think it's very important to have a, a bit of, uh, I mean, I don't think narcissism is the right word for it. It's probably closer to confidence. But the idea that you, you got to bring the attention to yourself some way or another. You know, especially when you're doing jokes about self-deprecation. Yeah. It's important to have that. Or, or, or is this bullshit? What do you think? No, I think that's it's absolutely true because it is. And it's funny because, like, I remember first going up on stage and you know how the first, you know, you go to a mic and everybody's, 
you know, out front smoking, somebody's in the back, you know, they're out in the back, you know, way back in the room talking so that they're not disturbing you, but nobody is paying attention. And I remember just thinking like, nobody's paying attention to me. And I remember the first time someone paid attention, you know, like I actually had an audience's attention. I was like, oh my God, what am I supposed to do? Why are all these people looking at me? And it was like, all this time, this was all I wanted. Even the first time I got like a real big laugh, I was like, God, what am I supposed to do? These people are laughing. Like, I, I hadn't anticipated this part of it. Uh, what kind of musician is your boyfriend? Uh, my boyfriend is a blues singer. Amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm a huge blues fan. Oh, yeah. That's awesome that he's pleased. How is the music scene down there? Is there... How is it? Um, the music scene, we have a really good music scene, I think. Because um, for me, I feel what's lacking up here, and some people might kill me for saying this, but I, I'm... There, there's not the blue scene here is dying. There, there is the blue scene. Period is dying. I mean, yeah. maybe not dying necessarily, but it's it's people are, are are definitely not looking to the roots of rock and roll, and, and I feel musicians to the point where you know, for, I don't know. Maybe I'm biased because I'm a huge blues fan, but I felt like, it, I mean, for you in Modesto, it's working class, really. Yeah. Right. Or for you, sure. you guys in the fields, you guys in the industry. Yeah. And here in San Jose, especially out of a lot of cities here, we're, we're working class. A lot, a lot of people try not to admit that. A lot of people mm-hmm. want this whole tech face going on. Yeah. But it's, it's bullshit. Uh, and I think I, I think that plays a factor, where, where where people are trying to trying to cover up the the dirtier sides of, of of life here. But for me, that's where real beauty, honest music comes from. Yeah. And. In Modesto, I think we're lucky because not only are there is there a group of musicians that are you know working and and playing, but there are a group of people who, in other times, would maybe be called patrons. Hmm. You know, there is a group of people who are very supportive of the music and the comedy scene. Um, our downtown is actually pretty lively a lot of times, and it's it goes in phases. But, I mean, I think that we're lucky because there are people who have money who are willing to sponsor shows, you know, and are trying to do things. We just lost X-Fest, which was, like, the hugest thing that happened in Modesto. It was a huge uh, outdoor music festival that they used to do every summer. And What happened? Uh, the city didn't want it downtown anymore because they would shut downtown, and it would get pretty crazy. It was, like, ten blocks that they would shut down of downtown. And just, wow. That's it a was, party. It was huge. And it would go from, like, like noon to you know, two in the morning. It was crazy. Um, but there are still people in, in Modesto who are, you know, supportive of the music scene and so on. We have the Gallo Center, um, which we get a lot of big name acts there. And then we have another theater, the State Theater, which is a historic, like, restored theater, and they put on local shows too. So it's pretty great. And, you know, again, we have that 209 advantage. So my boyfriend plays in the foothills a lot, you know, um, where his music, you know, it's because he plays, he has two bands. He has uh, one that's an electric band, a uh, full, you know, two guitar players, bass, whatever, and then he has an acoustic band. And so, you know, there's a lot of places to go. And the, Does the style of blues change with that? Oh, yeah. The, the yeah, his electric band is definitely like a dance band, Chicago style. Chicago? More. Kind of like the boogie woogie stuff? Yeah, but they're more, but they, they, what I love about it is they put a lot of funk in it. it, it mm. It's it's really good dancing music, of course. and uh, you know it's it's very much a hybrid. A lot of people don't think that it's 
you know, a lot of people kind of will say, like, that's not real blues, but it's like, yeah, it's it's blues, you know. Why but, would they say that? Because no. they have a lot of guitar, um, very guitar heavy, and sometimes people are like, you know, because it has the funk, you know, they have... They they have sh- songs are, that are straight out funk beats, those you know. People, those people are very ignorant then. Yeah, and and uh, but his other band is more like folksy acoustic. I call it like porch blues. Porch blues. You know, like <laughs> like back in the day, you know, people would sit on the porch and somebody'd have their guitar and somebody'd right. be stumping their foot and you so know singing. How did you get involved with the blues singer? How did I get involved with the blues singer? Um, in my exploration of of what I wanted to be when I grew up. I uh, I was taking bass guitar lessons because I wanted to learn how to play the the bass. I have a bass right there. No. Can you play something? Oh hell no. no! So so you you, you try to learn. I the was bass. trying to learn the bass, and my teacher and his girlfriend you were performers, and so I was like, dude, when you guys go out, you know, I wanna I wanna go and hear you guys perform. So they took me to this party, um, in Modesto. And um, it's this family that always has, it's, they call them backyard boogies, but basically just a bunch of musicians go to this house, you know, and they just have a stage and everybody will just go up and sing or whatever. And um, I met him there at that party. And like, um, he sang a couple of songs, but like everybody was singing. And so I was like, oh, okay, cool, you know, whatever. You know, like you're just a dude who can sing. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't think of it as, like, a big deal. And then later on, I was like, oh, oh, wow, you are kind of a big deal. Like, but up until then, I was like, oh, you're just, like, a person who seemed interesting who happened to be singing and whatever. So, yeah, but a lot of people accuse me of being a groupie. Why? Wait, what do you mean by that? Oh, because people always just assume that I was, you know, some backstage Betty, you know, like, ooh, I'm going to get with the band. <laughs> Where it was, like, not like that at all. Well, did you like the blues before? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah totally like the blues before. But, I mean, like, I didn't even see him. Besides singing at that party, I hadn't seen him perform. I didn't see him to f- perform for, like, three or four months until about three or four months after we'd been, like, hanging out kind of and talking and stuff. Hmm. But, yeah, I just the whole everybody always says, you know, you, you just get assumed to be the, the groupie or whatever. And it's like, yeah, that's not how it is. Hmm. Or, well, it's hard. It's hard. It's It's... Blues, I, I don't know, at least for me, like, uh, I love the blues, I love to play the blues a lot better than I do now, and no chicks go for blues players these days, at least my age, they don't, they, they, all, and, want, they all want their Ed Sheeran, they all they want their, you know. Yeah, and and that's what the problem is with blues in general, I think, is that, you know, like. We're not attractive enough. <laughs> well, not that, it's that the, fan, the, the fans are older, there yeah. aren't a lot of people, you know, even my age, in their 40s, well, more people in their 40s, but I mean, like. 20s and 30s you don't see them Mm. you know it's it's just they don't go out and it's it's hard you know sometimes and it's it's good music it's fun music it's it's the music where so much other music was born from Mm. but no one seems to be interested in it and you know well i don't know for me again i'm biased it holds a special place in my heart like i've been to a lot of i've I've been to jazz concerts i've been to pop stuff stuff i've Mm -hmm. been to rock and i've been Orchestra, all kinds of music, but for some reason, when I go to an actual blues music, and this could be funky blues, this could be soulful, yeah. this variety, I, I tend to get emotional. You know, like yeah. so, something in me hits a chord, and it's like mm-hmm. tears run down my face. You ever had that experience with music before? Oh, all the time. I I am a huge music fan. 
that's why like I wanted to play the bass and it was like oh yeah maybe I'll like join a band and I couldn't do it like I would finally get a beat down you know and then my um teacher would say like okay you, you're you're doing good so like, okay now I'm gonna play with you just keep doing what you're doing so then he'd start riffing on the guitar and I'd be like oh wow what's that that you're doing and I would stop playing <laughs> and I'm like this probably isn't for me I don't have the attention span for it. <laughs> All right, Felicia, what's uh, what's what's next for you? What's next for me? Like yeah. gigs and whatnot? Yeah. Okay, let's see. What do I have? We're, we're, we're closing up shop soon. Okay. We're reaching the hour mark. Oh, let me check out my calendar. Like, where can people usually find you? Um, I'm all over the place. Let's see. Let me look at look at my book because I seriously cannot remember. It's been going so. Let's see. Oh, I'm gonna be Sunday tomorrow. I'm gonna be at Comedy Burger in Sacramento. Um. Can they follow you on, online? Yes, like I'm at Felicia Limon Comedy. That's a website. That's just my Facebook page. Um, I have a show March 11th. Uh, the end of this month. We are going, oh, on March 1st, I'm going to be in Turlock. At the end of the month, the 20th, we are going up to uh, Humboldt in Oregon the week of the 20th. So. Awesome. Yeah, I've got a lot of stuff going on. It's great chatting with you. Thanks, you too. Yeah. yeah. It was good? It was yeah, good. this was fun. It was fun? All right. Yeah. Good to know. Well, anyway, thank you for coming. Thank you.